Infinite Country is the fourth novel by the brilliant New York Times best-selling author Patricia Engel. Holding us captive from the first sentence, Engel proves her commitment to leading each reader into a masterclass of how a finely crafted story can leave us all wanting to follow each character well beyond the last pages. In this episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast, we sit down with Patricia Engel to discuss her new novel and what time and borders do to those we call family. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Join us as we discuss Infinite Country. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzy'sbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. So welcome to the Vulgar Geniuses podcast. Welcome back, everybody. We have um, a very exciting podcast today. Yes. So today we are joined by the wonderful writer, Patricia Engel. She is the author of uh, Infinite Country. It is a Reese's book club pick, an Esquire book club pick, Indie Next pick, Amazon Best Book of the Month, and more. Uh, She was born to Colombian parents. Patricia is a graduate of New York University and earned her MFA at Florida International University. She currently teaches at the University of Miami. Go Canes! Her books (laughs) include The Veins of the Ocean, It's Not Love, It's Just Paris, and Vida. Um, Welcome, to the Vulgar Geniuses Pie class. Miss so. Patricia Engel. Yay! Yay. <laughs> Hi, thank you so much for having me. It I'm is, happy to be with you this evening. It's such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for making time out of your, your busy week, busy day. Um, everybody is loving Infinite Country, and I don't see why they won't. <laughs> like, they're crazy if they won't. I would smack them in the face if they won't. (laughs) So, Infinite Country. Um, Talia is being held at a correctional facility for adults and girls in the four-steed mountains of Colombia after committing an impulsive act of violence that may or may not have been warranted. She urgently needs to get out and get back home to Bogota, where her father and a plane ticket to the United States are waiting for her. If she misses her flight, she might also miss her chance to finally be reunited with her family in the North. So this novel starts out very, very strong, Miss Patricia. It, it is, you know, it shocked us all. Oh, yes, for sure. <laughs> but I think what, you know, what shocked me is like how she got into that facility. Mm-hmm. Like how... Like, I guess, quote-unquote, crime that she committed. That she poured hot oil on a man that poured hot water over a cat. So, we're going to dive deep a little bit. So, um, my question is, what was the cat seen as a metaphor for how unimportant people of color's lives are seen? And how retaliation is seen as something gravely inhumane to the perpetrator? 
Uh, those are both really good questions. And uh, the metaphor is for the reader to determine. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's an act of, of violence that is also up to, for interpretation, whether it's justified or whether it's not. And, 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 the, and the, the idea of um, uh, making someone uh, pay in some way Mm -hmm. for some act of cruelty that they've committed on another being. I, I wanted to ask that question, where are the lines of morality there? Mm -hmm. And I'm always, I'm always concerned with that in my work. I'm always diving deep into the questions of uh, good people doing things that are considered bad for good reasons mm -hmm. um, and vice versa. Uh, so it's, uh, but the thing is, I didn't have to go far to invent this because it's mm -hmm. actually based on true events. Yeah. One time I was in Colombia and I was there for a festival and I was traveling and, um, a college student was accompanying me somewhere and uh, she told me this story wow. and, um, in, in which case, you know, she did not retaliate with such violence, but she witnessed the act. Mm. And we had uh, a conversation about it that really made an impression on me. And so the idea to have Talia in that kind of a situation actually came from real life. And I'm uh, very moved by things like that sometimes, really mm -hmm. just ordinary people who are called to act in, in, in the moment. And what are we really capable of when mm -hmm. pushed to it? Hmm. Yeah, that was definitely a powerful, a powerful subject within that book on how she ends up in the in the facility. And you, you have a lot of questions that come into it into play, right? Yes, because, you know, for someone who was always a rule follower, like, why was it that moment, you know, that made Talia switch for her to pour the oil on that man? And she, she, there's a moment in uh, in the book where uh, she considers how uh, people who can do terrible things, like the man who killed the animal, uh, can be victims, and how victims can be people who mm -hmm. do terrible things. Right? Uh, is that right? How victims can be people who do terrible things, and, and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So. That really, nobody, even though sometimes we think of ourselves as righteous beings, sometimes nobody is safe from their own dark side. True. Uh, it can, and uh, to me, that's something that's always fascinated me. Um, and I think that it's also something to to that really forces us to be compassionate, not only to others, mm. and to ourselves. And really, the whole book is about people who are being criminalized and determined mm -hmm. to be criminals by doing something that is only natural to, for the human species, which is a migrate move. That's how the human species has ensured its survival, mm -hmm. by moving the same way other species do. And when we observe it in nature, we think it's this miraculous you know, instinct, right. but when we see humans do it... Um, it, 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 they're they're criminalized and they're frowned upon and judged yeah. um, and we have determined that that's somehow wrong so i'm always intrigued by how we are able to make value judgments as a society about mm. things um, that people may do uh, for for the right reasons for honorable reasons for the truest reasons i know your your novel just dropped on everybody um, a few days ago, but I was just wondering, have you 
gotten any messages that may vary in regards to her pouring that oil on him? Like, have you had any readers contact you and have, like, feelings (laughs) that might contradict someone else's in regards to that that decision? No, I've gotten a ton of messages so far, but um, now that you mentioned it, I guess maybe strangely, not a single message about that. Hmm. Yeah, well, maybe well. maybe later. Give them time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, with any great book, we all understand how important that very first line is because it's it's the one that is going to um, hook you in and bring you in and and make you want to find out what's what's next. Why this is the line, and when we open up your novel, the very first line is, "It was her idea to tie up the nun." I was like, "What? Yeah. <laughs> what? What is happening?" <laughs> I I grew up in a Catholic school, so I'm from the Philippines. So when I was like, "Somebody tied up which nun? What nun? How? How again, ma'am?" <laughs> so, um, this being your first novel. Uh, uh, your first line in the novel. We wanted to know, like, how did this line come about? Was this something that you just thought of and you're like, hmm, this will be a good start? Was it a part of a sentence and you just pulled that chunk out and you said, you know, like, maybe I should start with this part of the story? Like, how did you come about with that opener? Um, it's interesting. You know, I was, I was like dreaming up this novel for a good long time before I sat down to write it. But this sentence came to me fully formed and it was the first sentence of the novel and I wrote it. And from there I just wrote on forward. So it was always the first sentence and it came out exactly that way. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, you know, this is my fourth book. And as I've gotten um, older in terms of book writing, um, I've, I'm always pushing myself to be as economical as possible, to not waste time on meandering sentences mm. and really just get to the heart of things. So I just happened to explode right into the action. But um, some people ask me where the idea of that came from, and that's also uh, from true events. Uh, many years ago, I read uh, like a headline. It was a very tiny article in some very small publication. And it was about a group of adolescent girls who had broken out of a correctional facility mm-hmm. in the mountains uh, in Colombia. And they just you know, disappeared into the jungle. And uh, it had just happened. So I don't know if they were found. I never knew like why they were there or what their motivation was. But I was so intrigued by this young group of girls that were badass enough to break out of a, a, a prison, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it stuck with me. Um, and I thought, well, maybe someday I'll write something about it. And mm-hmm. at the same time, I was in the very early stages of thinking about this family novel that I wanted to write. And at a certain point, uh, the two things merged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I I, pre- I definitely greatly appreciate like the finesse on how you wrote this novel being as powerful as it is without too many words. Because I think it it is it takes a lot of skill for somebody to do all of that, but but still leave this some sort of like great impression. And it you know it it lays heavy on me not because I'm I disagree with anything. It's because it's it's such it's such a story of like my life. So yeah, I it really it really made 
a big like a big impact on me and i just wanted you to know that <laughs> wow thank you so much thank you so um in addition to just you writing that first line i'm always curious about the writing process um and you know it's like what comes first for somebody when they're writing the story did you already have the end in sight or was it something that you had to work towards um usually the way that i work is i don't have like a literal end in mind mm -hmm. i just have an idea of the emotional note that i want the novel or the story to end on and i don't necessarily know what that's going to look like until i get there okay. so um i i you know i start with with this this um kind of clay formation of a family and I start carving it out and carving it out and placing them in seeds and making them interact and, and that whole thing and that takes it takes a while that's a journey unto itself but then writing towards the end um sometimes it's it's like it slows down and speeds up all at once mm -hmm. how I can describe it and even sometimes until the very last page I don't know I'm at the last page mm. until I'm done writing it and then I'm like I just finished. Um, well, so it's it's. I don't have a, um, an outline or bullet points or anything like that. I just have an emotional map that I really follow until I get to the end. And then when I hit that emotional note that I know that I've been searching for for the whole novel, then I know that then it's uh, time to wrap it up. What was the most surprising? character within that story that you found yourself writing about that that just came out um the most surprising character well they, they all have to be capable of uh surprising me or i wouldn't be interested enough to write them mm. you know? so um the fun thing is you know you start with an idea of a character but then you get to know them in a deeper way and, and you start to understand their contradictions and mm -hmm. oh i thought that they were this way but look what they're doing now it's not you know and so it, uh, so much of it is creating the surprises within a character so they all surprise me because at the end of the day as a writer if a, if a character is not capable of surprising me then, then there's really no point in writing them you know <laughs> that's true that's true <laughs> <laughs> um I'm also interested uh, in regards to the switch of, of, of point of view within the story. Because when we're reading, we're going between um, Talia and her father, right? And it is, it's written in third person. But then there's this sudden switch in the middle where we meet um, her sister and her brother, Karina and Nando. Um, why did you choose to uh, switch this point of view and allow them to tell their own story? Well, it's actually all in first person. It's just that you don't know who the narrator is until uh. she announces herself. Right? So she is telling the story of her father and sister, but she hasn't centered herself in their stories. They are mm -hmm. centered. Mm -hmm. So she's mm -hmm. sort of off stage, you know, narrating the story. Until um, at, at a certain point in the book, as you mentioned, you know, she's got things to say. So it's, it's a her lot turn. of things. <laughs> yeah. And then at another point, she kind of tosses the mic to her brother because, you know, he 
he's not really going to let his story be filtered through her just yet. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, some people have uh, have perceived it that way as a change in the narrator, but it, but she's she's really controlling the book. She's uh, she's the one who's writing the family chronicle. She's the family witness, the family truth teller, and she's assembling the story of the family. So everything from the from the first moments um, are. Um, it's the story that has been told to her as, as she explains that she's she's putting together. Hmm. I think that just um, like shake, shaking us up a little bit because <laughs> we I were, wasn't ready for that answer. Yeah, that makes me want to go back and reread it. Yeah, like, how did I miss that? <laughs> <laughs> See, surprises, and we love it. And so, you know, um, speaking of uh, Karina, she hated like the word undocumented and minority and um she was very passionate about like her beliefs and like where she stand and what you know what this country is you know supposed to like be for her or what it is for her um so i just wanted to ask um who was this novel written for um is it for those who have lived or are living through this experience or for those who think they lay claim to this land um, simply by being born here. Well, it's uh, it's a story of a family that's in the the active process of emigrating, and the process of emigrating, the process of diaspora, is is not a process that ever ends. It just evolves. It just becomes something else. Right? It becomes yes. maybe perhaps more rooted in the new country after so many years and and um, distance separates you from the former country. So mm-hmm. it's about a family, and I wrote the book for families like this. Uh, my family is a, is a, a family that immigrated, and, um, and I was raised by and around and in a community of people uh, experiencing the same thing. And a lot of those people are challenged by migratory statuses that have been assigned to them, ever-changing immigration laws that sometimes change from one day to the next. And a law that was perhaps designed to help them the next day does the exact opposite. And sometimes all of these um, experiences exist within the same family. So there's the collective experience of a family that has um, been broken away from the former homeland and living this life in the new country. And that rupture in the family tree, which is uh, traumatic in Mm -hmm. itself. But then there's the individual experiences, the private experiences of each family member. So I really wanted to write a book about those nuances. In my experience, immigration from the parents down to the children of immigrants or those who were brought as babies or who were born here, it's a very nuanced experience. Uh, It's often full of doubt. It's often full of regret, wondering if you made the right choice. Yes. Uh, deep longing and profound homesickness and loss, almost like a death. Mm-hmm. And all the while wondering about the life you left behind. And it's almost like a parallel life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. But what if? What if we've not left? And what if we could go back, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if you leave family behind there. Yeah. I... So I, I, these are the families, you know, that I've known all my life. And I, I, wrote, I wrote it for them. Yes, and that's when you when you said I wrote it for them. I feel like I'm one of the them, because yeah. my my parents. I was gonna say I wrote it for us. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. But 
you know, you can, you know, I, I'm like, I'm, I'm not Colombian, but I am an immigrant and, um, I, I am, uh, I was not born here. I was born in the Philippines and then all, all the stuff that you spoke about regret leaving a life back then, you know, in your, in your, like what we call like old country and, okay. um, experiencing as, as if somebody died giving up your other citizenship to obtain a new one and then questioning yourself is this you know ever is this is this like the right thing to do um and then leaving parts of yourself back there like family experiences friends and stuff like that and it's like it's like you're living a double life but nobody knows about it but yourself or or just the people surrounding you um and it's just always yeah. a very hard decision of like you know of committing to to it but sometimes um we we don't like we don't really have a choice um there's this kind of like filipino term we call like kapit sapatalim which means like holding on to a knife it's basically doing anything to achieve a goal um so we see people here a lot of people in the story making choices whether it's right or wrong they made those choices um but we were we were wondering what is the privilege between having the ability to make a choice versus having to do something that you don't want to do even though you don't you don't want to do it like elena staying in that restaurant even after what she had gone through because she had no choice she had to give money back back home for talia Um, yeah, and, you know, this is such a common reality yes. that I did not have to go far to invent it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was raised with my parents saying, uh, we ate shit so you don't have to. Mm, yes. Um, and I think that's so common, at least it was in my community. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so much of, um, uh, of parents absorbing things an absorbing thing and of course this is you know uh, the layering of trauma and violence and all those things but absorbing things just gambling on the hope that it will have been worth it later yes and uh i i then what you were saying you know was so moving to me and i thank you for sharing that and um i think i i live in miami now i moved here from new york and imagine so many years in new york and i never saw one thing that i saw when i moved here to miami which is support groups Mm. for the loss of homeland yeah um which i really moves me because i think it's such it's like just acknowledging that profound loss Mm -hmm. in that kind of a setting which i'd never seen before yeah um is is so valuable in itself Mm mm-hmm because a lot of people have that idea that once you arrive in a new country, well, oh, you're here, you know, it's, yeah. everything else is behind you. There's no looking back and you should just be grateful to be here. And it's not the case at all. No, and some people will spend, you know, the rest of their whole life in a new country. And then when they're close to death, they'll say, I'm going back now because they want to die where they yep. came from. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a and, very common story. And so I, I have, maybe as I've gotten older, I've thought about these things um, in much uh, deeper ways and the ways that we carry our homelands with us in ways that we don't even know yet. I mean, scientists have already proven we carry trauma in our DNA. Mm-hmm. So, and so we carry our, our homelands, the actual land, the soil, our point of origin. That's got to be in us 
someone too. Yes, that's why you do Google Earth. You look at you look at back home. <laughs> and like I laughed so hard when you said that, but I'm like it also made me like kind of sad because I've done that multiple times. Like just looking at where I grew up, where my grandfather lives, where my auntie lives, and you know just reminisce, good or bad. It's it's looking back. So I was like, man, this book it's hitting me in the core <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> Um, so we, we, we have Elena, who is the, who is the mother of, of the children in the story. And, um, there's this thing about this feeling of guilt, uh, that I feel like, uh, that she carries throughout, uh, the novel. What is it that you wanted the reader to gain about that feeling that of guilt that she carried um, throughout the story in regards to her making the right decision as to her leaving Colombia and her staying in the U.S. and not going back home with Maro? Well, when Maro and Elena, you know, they're, they're basically teenagers who fall in love and so yeah. you know, she becomes pregnant, they have a baby, and they come to the United States the way a lot of people do, which is with a tourist visa. Yes. And they overstay, which is what a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. But they still don't see themselves as immigrants, and they still have the idea that it's only a matter of time before they go back. Yes. And what happens in their case is also a very typical experience where it's just life is an accumulation of days, right? And each mm-hmm. day you make the choice to stay another day. And the next thing you know, months have passed. And then years have passed. And then you turn around and you have a whole life here. It yeah. just kind of happened. So, um, and that's something that she struggles with because, of course, she has children in this new country who are different from her. And she has to negotiate whether she stays here for her American-born children or if she goes back. And one way or another, it's changing the course of, of her children's lives. And, she, of course, she has left her mother behind. And we find out she has to send uh, her daughter, Talia, back home to be cared for by her mother because she just cannot manage it on her own. But it's really, there's no wrong view mm-hmm. for her. It's something that she has to decide day after day, you know, and she's constantly wondering if she should just pack it all up and go back. Mm. And that's something, you know, I've seen a lot, too. Um, one question that I often think about when I'm asked or if I hear anyone ask it is, what do you do for a living? Um, this question is, is, to me, is such a heavy and multifaceted question because for Americans, it's, a, it's used as a measuring stick for status. Uh, we often hear about stories of those who've moved here to seek better opportunities, but despite having the degrees or having acquired a lot of uh, a, a skill, um, their experience of fine-tuning their skills is never quite enough. And with Karina and Nando, we see them having to make a choice of where to take their next step in their lives. What did you want us as the readers to gain from that conversation? Well, you know, they, um, they're making choices based on what's available to them, of course, but 
I don't try to dictate what a reader's experience is. I'm just writing characters and writing their lives. Um, again, their 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 lives are are very common. There's thousands of Karinas out there, mm-hmm. and thousands of, of Nandas out there, uh, and I've known many of them. So I was just trying to you know replicate a human experience, which is what I try to do in, in all of my work and uh, create relationships for the reader to these people that I'm introducing them to. Mm. Uh, and they're making the choices that, that they can, you know, based on who they are and what their desires are and what their goals are and what is actually possible for them, considering the challenges and, and uh, limitations that they have to navigate. Yeah, it's kind of like when Karina, you know, was was supposed to be also like the valedictorian that really hurt hurt my feelings a lot because <laughs> um, just because you know she is an immigrant she's a person of color and then and then yet she has the same grades as this lady other lady but because she's going to like an ivy league school that gave her i guess the privilege to to speak in front of everybody well i think mm-hmm. you know more people can learn so much more from her but that's just my opinion. <laughs> so um, in a previous interview um, that she did, you spoke about what Time and Borders does to love. Um, what do you think is affected the most when you lose that time with your loved ones because of the separation like Maro and Elena had or the separation between the mother and the child? Well, th- that's a... That's a question that the book asks, and it's up to the reader to decide how it's answered. But I have to tell you that when I wrote this book, there is no way I could have anticipated that it would be published during the pandemic. Mm. Yes. During, like, entering the second year of a quarantine yes. that has made so many people unable to visit their families. Mm-hmm. Even when they live in the same city or the same state, they just, you know, haven't been able to see each other reasons that are completely out of their control and also this is the first time at least in my lifetime that i recall that the borders of most countries are closed to americans yes so um i think that this is something most people now can answer in some way which is you know if a lot of people haven't seen their family in a year already right Mm -hmm. and do you become less of a family because of that? You know, your friends that you haven't been able to hang out with in some time, are you less friends because of that? Yeah. So time and distance, and of course, if you, you have uh, limitations of not being able to keep in regular contact and things like that, of course, those are obstacles. But does it change the bonds of a family? Or does the love that a family um, naturally charities um does that transcend borders and Mm -hmm. in the case of this family that's what they are working out that particular part about um with you not knowing that the pandemic is was about to arrive (laughs) um it resonated a lot with me because my my mother and my sister's family currently live in baltimore and um as we started into this new way of living um well i should say prior to that i had 
just driven my nephew up there because he just moved his family to Baltimore. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I said to my mom when I got out of the car was, I'm never taking that drive ever again. Because I have done that. It's a 12-hour drive that somehow turns magically into 24 hours. (laughs) I don't know how. But um, when the pandemic hit, I instantly thought about the last, the first thing that I said to my mom when I got out of that car, and I instantly regretted it because I would give anything to be able to go and see my mom now um, and not being able to have that opportunity, um, you know, is just not even a fingernail of what people uh, feel as they go about their lives every day in this country who have that story of uh, coming here for a very number of reasons. Um, Which makes me want to know, um, for those who have have yet to to read this book, this is a point where you could just put on pause and maybe just give us like maybe three three minutes (laughs) to discuss this. But I am curious as to, you've written these characters and they've gotten to a place where they're reunited. What do you see as their future after this book has ended? Where where do you see this family? Oh. <laughs> well, I mean, do you really want me to say? <laughs> yes. How how do you where do you see this this family end up? Um, I see them in my own way, but I think that's also the magic of reading is that the reader can see them in their own way. I think what they tell you or the information that you have is that even I mean let's not ruin the ending right right um, the 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 moment where the novel concludes I think it's pretty clear that there is an air of impermanence it could change at any moment mm-hmm. right this is not this does not mean that they have arrived and you know everything is gonna work out or not work out it's it's still it's it's still an uncertain road um so listen i don't have a crystal ball um but the the great thing about writing is you you write characters that will go on living a life without you Mm -hmm. um you like in this novel it it touches about like um, what is what is the American dream for me, at least? Or, you know, how can you say that you have fulfilled the necessary, like, tick marks to be called an American? So, um, for you, like, how how does the novel define um, being, being an American? Or what does it take for one to be called an American? Honestly, I have no idea, and I guess I'm technically American. Um, you know, I, I think it's also funny that the United States has a claim American, even though it's just one nation in all of the America. Yes. <laughs> People in other countries who call themselves American as well. But this idea of the American dream is kind of something perpetuated by the United States. Mm-hmm. And uh, people abroad, in my experience, in travels, don't have that notion of uh, coming here and finding perfection. They're just looking for something perhaps better. Mm-hmm. But this 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 uh, idea of this almost dreamlike utopian um, 
place or space that one finds himself in, I think that's manufactured by mm-hmm. the, the North American mentality. Yes. I don't know what it means to be American. Uh, that's something that I don't know I possibly explore in different ways every day of my life. But so much of me is also Colombian, and I'm constantly mm-hmm. exploring that too. So the United States is, is a country that ha- has manifested as a result of diaspora. And I think something that we're understanding now as immigrants and, and children of immigrants is that there's not a binary. We don't have to choose. Yes. We don't have to um, be American and not be something else. And in fact, a diaspora is an open-ended thing. It's, a, it's something that's constantly evolving and shifting as well. You don't just arrive somewhere by exiting elsewhere and shut the door, as we said before. In trans-diaspora, you can go back and forth and shift and re-explore and deepen your relationships and your roots in multiple places. And you can be all those things at once. And that doesn't make you any less American, and it doesn't make you any less Colombian. It's just well, we're something else. Yep. And of course, that's that's how that's how the, the world the world moves mm-hmm. because we're constantly in motion. Yes, I hope everybody heard what she said, because <laughs> more people need to, I guess, embody that type of thinking. Because mm-hmm. America is what we make it. Immigrants most especially, I think, um, help shape what, you know, the type of America we're moving towards to. Um, going back to, to the to the story, um, I kind of really appreciated the, the you know, putting the, the myths and, you know, the little stories that goes on between Maro and Talia or um, Perla and Talia because I, I grew up having those stories and even though... Um, you, your stories might be a little bit different than mine. They're also the same. So it was just, it was a treat for me because I felt like, you know, it was my own grandmother or grandfather that was telling me that story. Um, how important was it to include those types of, um, I guess those those types of scenarios in, in a novel like this? Well, I, I come from a very, very large Colombian family, a very creative family painters and musicians and storytellers and my grandmother was a writer and and I think something that uh, that I've observed at least in um, in my family and other uh, immigrant families is that storytelling is a very important part of our survival yes because without repeating the story of who we used to be before we got here it's almost like there's no proof, right? Mm-hmm. Because yeah. we're, you know, I, it, it, without me being told so many stories about what the life of my family was like before we ended up in New Jersey, you know, I could not have known, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so storytelling is a testament, and it's a way to understand ourselves. It's a way to know ourselves, and it's a way to form a belief system. That's the same in the case of an individual, in the case of a family, and it's the case of countries. Countries are, you know, the result of repeated storytelling as well. Mm-hmm. We just call it history. So um, I've always been really interested in ancestral knowledge and traditional history, and uh, 
some people call them myths or folk tales, and other people take them as absolute truth. Mm-hmm. But they're they're stories that are very specific to that land, to that landscape, uh, and to the peoples who who were there, you know, um, originally. And because this is very much a story about leaving that and that rupture, the disruption in the family tree those stories become even more important because they are in critical danger of being lost forever. Yeah, they are. We're all in critical danger. (laughs) Um, Well, Infinite Country is definitely a story that will stay with, with me and I'm sure all the other people in the world who have the opportunity to pick it up and read it. And so we just want to say thank you um, for writing such a beautiful story. I I want to ask what what writers influenced your writing to be able to bring you to this point where you are right now today. Oh, there's so many. Um, I would have to say, I, I you know I was a, a big reader um, as a kid, as a lot of people who become writers were, right? Um, I also had the habit of rereading books, which I still have. I reread books all the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a, a very um, important period in my life was when I was like age 14 to 15. And that's when I kind of started to understand that books um, were powerful things mm-hmm. and that I wanted to do that. I wanted to write. You know, I was a kid who was always writing in diaries and journals and things like that. Mm. But I understood that I wanted to make things up. (laughs) (laughs) And so I feel like the books that arrived in my life at that period are still the ones that are like my literary godparents. Oh, Um, that's so So, so um, even though I've read a million books since then, um, but like a lot since then, I still feel like these are the books that are like formed me in the most um, powerful ways. So um, some of those books, just to give you an idea, there's a book called The Four Chambered Heart by Anna The Lover by Marguerite Um, a story by, um, well, actually, this, the whole story collection, Strange Pilgrims by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, um, and uh, a long short story, like a novella that he wrote, mm-hmm. um, the, the tale of Innocent and Envida and her heartless grandmother. And um, there were writers like Maurice Conde, Albert Camus, Colette. Mm-hmm. These were writers that um, somehow ended up like their books ended up in my house mm. and that's why I just found them <laughs> um, I don't know why they were in my house I guess you know I had an older brother and my mom was in, I don't know they were in my house so I read them and that's how I came across them and uh, I just always remember them as being fundamental you know, writing trajectory well, thank God they found your way into your house <laughs> they were waiting for her <laughs> yes <laughs> um, so you know, one of one one of um, I I I'm always curious. Um, like when somebody writes a book, it's like you know, what what would you want your reader like to be the greatest takeaway from your from your novel? It it packs a punch, but if you could you know if you could have that biggest impact um, for the reader, um, and if that if that is the only thing that they 
get from your novel, what would it be? You know, like part of me react will react to that as like a reader, like I don't, I don't want to be like you know uh, made to feel something. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm in charge of my own thoughts and reaction to something I read. So I don't know if like I would think there's like a takeaway. But I have to say, my motivations for writing this book are were very very simple. I wrote this book as kind of a love letter to families like mine and like mm-hmm. so many families that I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a story about about the love of a family. And it's not a perfect love. It's a very flawed love. And it's a, a love that often fails, right? Yes. But it's also a love that forgives. Mm-hmm. It's about the love between you know two teenagers who fall in love and become parents together. And it's about the love between parents and child and grandparent and child and siblings. And it's about the love of your homeland. And then, you know, a, a new life you make in, in a strange land. So it's really just about love all around. And I think that if someone can see that or read that, well, then the power of that um, can shift their thinking on many different things. In January, we had um, National Book Award finalist Disha Phil Y'all come on the show. And what we normally ask our guests when they when they come on, we ask them their top five. And, and you already gave us a list of books that influenced you. Um, but when we asked her, she switched the question. So we've decided that we're going to continue on. She's 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 lit the torch. Um, we wanted to know if any, if if there are like maybe your top five books that you are excited about that's that's coming out. Um, coming out or mm-hmm. like already out or already out coming out you know like if you have some friends that drop drop some books or they're about oh, yeah. to yeah for sure I'm really excited um, about um, the new one coming out this summer by Carolina de Robertis and she's the author of Cantoras which is an amazing book yeah so mm-hmm. her new one is called The President and the Fog mm-hmm. um and um, Nine McCoster's book, What's Mine and Yours, just came out too. Yeah. And I love that one. Um, another great book about immigration is The Affairs of the Falcons by Melissa Rizal. And a YA book coming out next year by Liz Huerta called The Lost Dreamer. I'm super excited about. Yeah. An essay collection that's coming out in a couple of months by Jen de Leon, who's also a great, she has a great YA book called Don't Ask Me Where I'm From, but she's mm-hmm. got a really brilliant story, um, essay collection, sorry, nonfiction coming out in uh, April, I believe, called White Space. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of amazing books coming out or recently out. For, for people to all right. check out. All right, people. Oh, yeah. that five? That's too much. That's, that's five. good. If, if no, it was no, 10, no. we'll take it. <laughs> yeah. The more, the merrier. You know, we could never have more, more, more wonderful books. And, you know, some of them I've heard of, but some of them you were... You, you, you were the first ones to let me know about it. So I'm sure everybody would be, like, wanting for it or at least be on the lookout for those books. Yeah, and I, I feel like writers have that inside tip because all of their other friends are also writers. So <laughs> you automatically know, like, oh, so-and-so is getting ready to drop that book. So it's good when you yeah. can hype your friends up um, whenever you get an opportunity. Um, we 
are so grateful that you were able to uh, come and talk to us about your beautiful book and um, with all of our technical difficulties. Yes, thank, thank you for you. thank you for being patient. And um, like I told you earlier, I, I used to live in Miami. I miss the, the sense of community and the sense of, you know, just being a part of something bigger over there. Um, but because of, you know, what happens in life, we have to move on and we have to leave also like the life that I made over there when I first moved. So if you can, you know, drink a uh, cafe con leche and um, a guava pastelito for me, I would really appreciate it. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you know, with 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 this, um, thank you so much, uh, Patricia, for indulging us and having, you know, having this conversation with us about your very, very wonderful book. Um, we can't wait, you know, to read more of your more of your stories. Um, it was written in such such finesse, but it's also given given us a lot of things to talk about. And I hope people would talk about your book for the years to come because yes. it it deserves it deserves all of that. Um, thank you so much. I so enjoy speaking with you both, and um, I'm really grateful for all your wonderful questions and the conversation. And when you come to Miami, you let me know, and we'll have a cafecito and and we'll have a Yay! <laughs> Anytime, ma'am. Um, I would not say no to to that invitation because I miss I I miss the culture so very much. So this this was a treat. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Patricia. Thank you both so much. Good night. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed our show. Follow us on Instagram at Vulgar Geniuses Book Club. Our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.